The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 4th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was reported and not refuted by the man in question that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson this summer considered quitting and called his boss, President Trump, a moron. Fucking moron, to be precise. Subsequent reporting revealed... Vice President Pence said to have persuaded Tillerson not to quit. Now, it wasn't true about the quitting part, said Tillerson in a press conference today. The vice president has never had to persuade me to remain as secretary of state because I have never considered leaving this post. As far as the did he call President Trump a moron charge, Tillerson did not refute it. He seemed miffed that the town of Washington would care about such a detail, but he did not go out of his way to deny uttering the words. Why? My theory is that Rex Tillerson is no moron. He didn't really want the job. He doesn't really like the job. He's not really good at the job. But the Secretary of State knows not to get into a name-calling contest with the man who minds epithets the way the Winklevoss brothers mine Bitcoin. And Rex understands extractive industries. There is no margin in that. But moron, moron, in a moment. First to idiot. Idiot was actually the number one adjective that respondents gave a recent Quinnipiac poll that asked, what is a word to describe your president? Actual poll, idiot, was the actual number one answer. But let's play the feud. Thousand seventy-eight voters surveyed. Top five answers on the board. Try to find the most popular answer. A word to describe President Trump. Uh, crazy. Show me crazy. Nope. Crazy did not make our survey. Was in the top 20, not in the top five. What do you say, Sue? How about idiot? How about idiot? Yes, the number one answer. Rasmussen family, will you play or pass? Play, play, play. play. Okay, they're going to play. They're going to play. How you doing, darling? A word to describe the president. Asshole. Show me asshole. 11th most popular answer, but did not make the top five. Oh, hello there, Jimmy. Hello. Such a nice young man. What do you say? What's a word that describes President Trump? I'm going to go with incompetent. Show me incompetent. It was the number two most popular answer. Hi there, Charmaine. You are looking lovely today. Liar. Okay, so you're a bucket of shit. I was just trying to be nice here, Charmaine. No, liar. The president's a liar. Oh, very good. Show me liar. It's the number three answer. Jim, what do you got? Stooge. Stooge? Stooge did not make the list. One strike left. What do you say, Mary? Uh, bully. Bully! It was 11th on the list. Didn't make the top five. Okay, Hanson family, it's your chance to steal. Clown, Douchebag. 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 All right, all right. Okay. Steve, you heard what your family is saying. I heard troglodyte, clown. Two answers on the board. A word to describe the president. I'm going to go out on my own and say moron. Good Good answer. answer. Good Good answer. answer. Okay, here we go. For the bank, show me moron. Oh no, the Rasmussen family wins. The American public does not. By the way, Rex was, to my mind, paying President Trump a compliment So in the old days, back before we were so, so sensitive, idiot, imbecile, and moron actually had meanings as defined by IQ level. Idiot 
was an IQ of 0 to 25, imbecile, 26 to 50, and moron, 51 to 70. This is one of those two good-to-be-true things, but I looked it up, and it does seem that those really were literally the levels. So by calling the president a moron, he's saying he's much smarter than an imbecile and at least twice as smart as an idiot. There is no, by the way, official IQ level assigned to dotard. On the show today, I spiel about how crowded my brain is because of how crowded the world is. Thank you, current events. But first, from the arachnoid files, it is General James Marks on our wars, our simmering conflicts, our could-be conflagrations, General James Spider Marks. The U.S. in Afghanistan is now engaged in the longest war in U.S. history. You probably knew that. We are also, in Iraq, engaged in what is the fourth longest war in U.S. history. And by the way, wars number two and three were the Moro War, which was a decade-long engagement in the southern Philippines. Remember that one? And the Northwest Indian War, which predated the U.S. Constitution. So maybe it's not accurate to call it the United States' longest war. Joining this is a man who I bet knows about the Moro War. It's uh, James Spider Marks. He was a major general in the U.S. Army, senior intelligence officer in the Balkans and Korea, and senior intelligence officer for combat in the land forces liberation of Iraq, which was Operation Iraqi Freedom. Hello, sir. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, absolutely. Right now, the state of ISIS Um, They seem to be on the run. They are out of Mosul. They are out of Raqqa. But they didn't always control those two cities, and they were a pretty pernicious force even then. Um, How virulent are they, and is the United States winning the war with ISIS? Well, it's difficult to say, to answer the second part of your question first, it's difficult to say that the U.S. is winning the war. I would say that the United States is making a significant impact on ISIS's ability to prosecute a very broad campaign and understand that the campaign that they have is not restricted to geography. We tend to draw a circle around what they, ISIS, would call their caliphate. That has decreased in size as a result of U.S., coalition partner pressure, the challenge that we have with ISIS is it remains a viable ideology. Although the caliphate itself geographically might have been altered and has shrunk over the course of time, which is a good thing, there's a what I would call a virtual caliphate in that anyone who is so inclined can get online, be a community within this ideology, find inspiration, and in fact, find some very practical ways to go about trying to get into the business of being, uh, of embracing violence extremism. And I think that's what we should really probably call it. ISIS is a name that's convenient now. It's one that we've given them. But the ideology exists until we can start getting upstream and denying its its validity. You know, if you were to take all the money that the United States spends countering violent extremism, uh, about 98% of that goes toward identifying, targeting, and killing. What we need to do is, <clears throat> I think, increase the amount, not I think, we must with certainty increase the amount of money we spend within that bucket, that total bucket, and get into the education piece so that we can start to arrest the, uh, and or at least expose the 
the invalidity and the challenges associated with the ideology. I think I sign on to just about everything you said. And it is true that ISIS is an idea as much as it is a military force. But the same was true of Al-Qaeda. And we we have made great strides against Al-Qaeda. Or maybe you could argue that ISIS kind of took over the role that Al-Qaeda was playing. So my question is, the military gains against ISIS, those aren't insignificant. And would you agree they're not insignificant in terms of striking out against the idea? Once they are don't seem as powerful and successful, they're going to draw fewer adherents, for instance. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. There is causality between, mili- you would hope there'd be causality between military operations and the atrophy and the lack of validity, strength, capability, influence that ISIS has. Very much undercovered has been the cost of some of our gains, or maybe you'll say uh, the two aren't as connected as I think they are. If you look at the civilian casualties from coalition airstrikes, and I credit there's a group called Air Wars, and they're not perfect, but I think they do their best to try to get an accurate count, and they even have they even break it down to when they can't confirm different civilian casualties, and they're the only ones doing it. So one of their statistics, and this is a couple months old, that during the Obama administration, coalition strikes caused 80 civilian deaths a month in Iraq and Syria, and under Trump, it's been 360 a month, and that's before the last two months, which were the only months that were over 1,000 civilian casualties. So basically, there's been a 10 or 20 times increase in the number of civilian casualties. Is that just an inevitable consequence of upping the war? Lowering the bar for collateral damage is really the suggestion that you have here. And I I am absolutely of the opinion that that's not the case at all. What we might be seeing is an increased number of airstrikes. Collateral damage assessments will always be a part of that. So I can't speak directly to the difference between 80 per month or 360 per month. There are some, and this is from reporting by the LA Times and the New York Times, there have been some tangible, I'll call it loosenings of the criteria for certain strikes. For instance, it used to have to go through, not President Obama himself, but the White House, a long chain of command to authorize any strikes in Yemen and Somalia. That is no longer the case. The commanders on the ground could make it. I imagine you might have been in a situation where you were frustrated and your hands were tied waiting for someone who maybe wasn't even in the, a civilian, for instance to authorize strikes. So, I mean, what the president says is we have given them total authorization. I mean, that's what he says. So is something like that actually going on? Well, what we're talking about is the ability of a commander to really attack a target, to go after targetable intelligence before it dissipates, atrophies, goes away, or it becomes, or what we say in the army, you're going to end up shooting behind the target. We don't want to shoot behind the target. So if we have to go through the various chains in order to get authority, that's the one thing that we lose is the opportunity. But the criteria remains the same. Right. But would you say that that has changed? I mean, Trump has said that that has changed. And Stephen Townsend, the lieutenant general, who's the commander of Iraq, says that it has changed uh, in a more aggressive manner. Yes. With this process that's in place now between this White House and this DOD, I would say absolutely Secretary Jim Mattis has has authorities that his predecessors in many cases did not have. I want to move to Korea for a second. I have not heard much difference on from experts or generals about what a military option would look like. I mean, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster says, there are military options. It's not what I prefer to do. Some are uglier than others. Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis 
says the same thing. We have the option to do so. We're not looking to the total annihilation of a country, namely North Korea, but we have the option to do so. Is there really any question about what would happen militarily were there to be a flat-out war on the Korean Peninsula? Uh, That's a really good question. I think minimally, I would say, irrespective of whether North Korea provokes or the United States does a preemptive strike, and I would suggest that the United States is not going to do a preemptive strike. They would have to be provoked to respond. Any military option sitting right in the middle of the table that we cannot move off the table would be catastrophic to Seoul. The proximity of Seoul to the DMZ and the location of North Korean artillery and rocket capabilities just across the mountainous terrain that really defines the border of that peninsula and its proximity to the DMZ in Seoul. Tens of thousands of people would be killed because of the artillery and rocket capabilities. We do not have the ability to prevent that. We can respond to that. We can try to minimize that. We can strike those artillery pieces after they've come out of the caves and they start to shoot. You know, Bear in mind, those artillery pieces are in caves that are on the north slope of those mountains, which means we have to – if we're going to strike them and strike them from the air, we have to go to the north you know, doing about face and strike from north to south, which right. cause exposure and all that kind of stuff. So we can't go after them right now. It's difficult to do that. So Seoul would end up paying a tremendous price, which means our alliance with the Republic of Korea is really going to be put under some immense pressure. Would the United States ever do that without the South Koreans signing on? Not at all. Yeah. No. South Korea would have to raise a hand and say, we got it. You know, a nuclear North Korea that's being provocative, that is being provocative, the discussion is going to be Seoul because of where you are. It's not pretty. You're going to end up paying a price, but we're, we're going to have to do something to eliminate this capability that the North Koreans have. But I would also say that you're not going to hear these military leaders or national security apparatus talk about regime change. You're not going to hear them talk about one Korea. Mm-hmm. Look, we've grown up over the course of the last 70 plus years after we divided this peninsula right on the heels of World War II. You know, the international body came together and said, yeah, we got, we're drawing this line right here because if you'll recall, the Soviets invaded North Korea right after we dropped the bomb on the nuclear bomb on Japan, and the United States was totally taken by surprise and went, oh my gosh, what is this? So we rushed some forces, a delegation to get in there and say, okay, we got we to gotta stop this, draw a line. We got the south, we got the north. Okay, here we go. We're going to start dividing the world. Trying to reunify that peninsula over the course of the 70 years, there's been so many so many differences between the develop the economic powerhouse in Seoul and the abject poverty in the north. Yeah, there might be some intangible the the cultural desire to bring these this one single single culture together. I would argue that culture doesn't exist in in its singular, singularity anymore, and that the chasm is too great. Yeah, that, a bunch of folks might say, "Yeah, we really want to get together." Hey, guys, that ship has sailed. Yeah, ain't gonna happen. Ain't gonna happen. Because if you polled all of the people on Earth and said, "Would you rather have a society like South Korea or North Korea?" Everyone would say South Korea, but for the two or three thousand powerful people in North. Korea, and they're the ones you, who matter. You, you got it, Mike. You got it. and and the other pro, the other folks in that poll would Beijing, and Beijing would cross their fingers and say, "We we really want to have a North Korea." They're gonna yeah. and then wink at you and say, "You know, we really." 
don't want in North Korea, but we haven't been able to figure out what North Korea after next is going to look like. So until we figure that out, we're going to we're going to keep this half a loaf uh, solution in place. It's you, just it's going to happen. Do you think in terms of the military options being communicated to the president, there is a difference between McMaster and Mattis? I don't. And do you think the president's getting the message? Because sometimes he he says things for different reasons, and he has said things that I don't think a military man would say in terms of total destruction and, um, you know, drawing red lines in in a way that his military advisors haven't drawn. So do you think he's getting that message? What the president says in terms of what folks have described as provocative against the Kim regime in Pyongyang isn't necessarily helpful, but it's not particularly relevant vis-a-vis the North. North Korea is going to North Korea. Kim going to Kim. You know, haters mm-hmm. haters going to hate. And that's what he does. It doesn't matter what we say. It matters precisely what we do and have the capability of doing that becomes transparent and visible to him. What the president says, however, because it's not helpful, doesn't really impact on the North, but it really has an ability to put into question our alliance and assurances that the president must give to our friends and partners and allies in the regions. You know, our obligation is to not only deter, which we do through our military presence, economic sanctions, we want to deter North Korea. But at the same time, we have to reassure our friends and partners. That's where I'm concerned that, you know, what discussions in Tokyo and discussions in Seoul might be a little bit different in terms of what the president really intends to do. And when you have discussions and you have that level of uncertainty and lack of predictability, that's when people start to make stuff up. And that is going to be maybe the condition for a real bad outcome. And this is my last question. It's random, but it struck me. It's about communication and rhetoric. Uh, Early on in our conversation, at one point, you said something like, you know, I think that. And then you checked yourself and you said, no, I know that. What we need to do is, I think, increase the amount, not I think, we must, with certainty, increase the amount of money we spend. And it just strikes me. I talk to so many people, and younger people especially, are always couching their language and, you know, I feel that, or it seems to me, or it's sort of. (laughs) I'll, I'll be talking to a reporter, and they'll be saying, it's sort of, and I'm thinking to myself, you don't mean it's sort of, you mean it is. And so I'm wondering, is there anything in your military training? Because whenever I interview someone from the military, they don't do that. They're pretty straightforward. Do they, communication-wise, does the military train its people to speak quickly and bluntly and without words couched in conditionals? Mike, that's a great question. I'm smiling because the short answer is yes. Information needs to evolve into intelligence, and intelligence has to drive good, solid, confident decision-making. So if you're using words like I feel, I think, it's kind of, sort of, you know, words that have an A at the end, (laughs) kind of, that's absolutely unhelpful because there are thousands of folks that are looking at you at any one time trying to interpret what you mean. If there is interpretation of what you're trying to say, you will have what we call daylight in the formation and people are going to MSU, you know, make stuff up. And when they're making stuff up, you have opportunities for mistakes. And when you have opportunities for mistakes, you've increased risk and you've put men and women at increased risk. So yeah, we do train that. We train that quite aggressively. James A. Spider Marks is a military analyst for CNN, retired Major General. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it.
And now the spiel. So as we heard, Vice President Mike Pence tried to talk Rex Tillerson out of leaving his post. It is of a piece with all the effort and all the concentration that goes into managing, cajoling, and handling the president, of giving him the news clips he likes, of making sure that Amorosa's Oval Office walk-in privileges are curtailed, of having him focus on the policies he's already endorsed. Uh, Mr. President, if I could have a moment to actually explain that China isn't manipulating currency. Imagine if all the time and attention that is directed at making President Trump president were directed at anything else, like, say, solving a legitimate crisis, or it won't even be that pie in the sky. Imagine if you're Paul Ryan or any regular old Republican who hitched your wagon to Trump's star on the theory that he's the best chance to pass your agenda. Imagine where your dream of tax cuts and ACA repeal would be, or whatever else dream you have. Imagine how much closer to reality that would be were it not for Captain Chaos and the constant attention he demands. Now, for me, the cost is brain space. What I wanted to do was just know the president visited a disaster zone and think, all right, I understand what happens when the president visits a disaster zone. He bucks up people and says nice things about the rescuers. That's not what happens when Trump visits a disaster zone. He turns what should be a rote visit into a minefield of insults and tone deafness. You get a roll of bounty. You get a roll of bounty. Today, the Senate announced progress on the Russia investigation. We heard that Jared apparently has a work email, a home email, an Ivanka-only email, a Stringer Bell burner phone. I can't keep up. And of course, Las Vegas, the sheer opacity of that deranged guy. And then back to Jared and Ivanka. Today, there was this long, long story that could be interesting, but it really added up to a prosecutor four to eight years ago decided not to prosecute them for lying about how well one of their properties was doing. And yeah, the Trumps also donated money to that prosecutor, Manhattan DA Vance, but there was no crime. And unless there's a crime, we can't just get excited about ethics violations, can we? When I'm robbed of this, of the ability to keep up with all this and process what's going on, you're robbed too. Because I know you come to me and you need my take on Kurdistan. You need my take on Catalonia. I mean, there's a Benghazi trial going on, an actual non-Breitbart-inflected, non-fiction court of law Benghazi trial. I can't keep up. I haven't read one thing about it. It's the first time Benghazi is being reckoned with in the non-fiction realm, and I don't know what's going on. And then, as we heard from Spider Marks, the wars, all the wars. Did you know that we have a new acronym to help us navigate progress on Afghanistan? Here's James Mattis testifying before Congress. Our new strategy, vigorously re reviewed and approved by President Trump, is, quote, R4 plus S, unquote, which stands for regionalize, realign, reinforce, reconcile, and sustain. Um, just going to throw this out there. Isn't sustain the same as retain? I mean, aren't they synonymous? So couldn't you have gone with the five R's? I'm not great at fighting, but I'm okay with the branding. Other war, Iraq, the Kurds. Yeah, they had a vote. They want to be their own country. Always have. Never have been able to. So I got to keep up with the Kurds, the Rohingya, the Yazidis, the Uyghur. I hear they're pretty and excellent models. I actually heard that report. Don't know. Can't look into it. Seemed fine to me. Every secession movement is either Biafra or Staten Island. You're either an oppressed minority 
or a bunch of ornery bastards who think of yourselves as an oppressed minority, but really don't want to pay taxes for others in this society. So Armenians, probably oppressed minority. Catalan, I don't know, probably more like Staten Island. The South in the Civil War, mostly Staten Island. The Kurds, well, a bit of Biafra. I mean, they are a minority. They are definitely discriminated against. But you know what? They're also better off than the countries they're inside of. Of course, those countries are, you know, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Turkey's not doing so well. So I could understand why the Kurds would want to break away. But they are, they do have their shit together a little more than the countries surrounding them. But I can't really get into it. It's just essentially a half-baked take. You're being robbed of my Kurd opinions. So I apologize. I apologize to all of you. And... I just vow that I will continue to monitor events. I will continue to fact find. I will be guided by the truth. I will try to avoid distractions. Because as someone who sits in an important and high-powered office, whose opinions affect lives, that is the least I can do. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who believes in the three R's plus S theory of training. Refresh, rehydrate, rehab, and Slurpees. Mary Wilson believes in the three R's plus S theory of Stallone movies. Rocky, Rambo, Rocky Four, and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Before that, he worked in a travel agency where he pitched the three R's plus S of tourism, Russia, Romania, Rwanda, and Serbia. Didn't work out for him in that industry. The gist. Listen, if you have more than 10 R's in a calendar week, don't worry. We will roll them over for you. See? Oompura dapura dupuru, and thanks for listening.